Okay, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I don't know. It's cold. It's cold out there. That's what I, that's all I can think about right now. I'm waiting. We're all waiting for spring. But you know what I was thinking about? I wanted to share with you today. I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? And I wanted to share that uh, I was thinking about my husband because he's been like really, really cranky lately because he's under a lot of stress. And I wound up like getting really like, you know, just like, I don't want to deal with this person anymore. And then all of a sudden, when I started thinking just like 20 minutes ago, what do I really want to let people know today? I was thinking, I want to let them know how much I appreciate my husband. Because, you know, there is so much great stuff that um, about him, about him that I get from the relationship, all this stuff. And I wind up like feeling really like annoyed at him. And I forget that I actually should be grateful. So I'm using that to tell you folks that today is a day. Let's all remember the people that are that are important and do a lot for us that we never say thank you to. Thanks, Phil. Anyway, all right, enough. We'll have a fight later, I'm sure. So I've got an on-air read to share with you. Do you know that, um, you know, Radio Free Brooklyn has live shows? We have live, we usually have like one or two live shows a month, but we have one live music show first Thursdays at the well. And tonight's the night. Tonight is the night. And we always have such a great time. And most of the, uh, a lot of the, you know, hosts show up and the bands are really great because we have so many music people. We, we know what the great good bands are and good bands want to be part of Radio Free Brooklyn. So come to the well tonight. Okay. It starts at eight. It's at the well, which is 272 Meserol Street. Tickets are $10 in advance. Eight, go to my Facebook page. You can get the link if you want. And I'm going to, here's the description. Um, First Thursday at the well. Three different takes. Exciting, expanding music scene, Brooklyn. Post-punk band, even twice. Streep Throat, after that. Uh, Closing out the evening, Vereen, in all their deviant glory. There, that's enough, right? You get it. You get it. Come on, it's going to be really fun. And we know you need some fun. What else are you going to do? You have no friends. Okay. So, anyway, thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. That's all I can say. So, I have a really, uh, really, really interesting guest here today. His uh, his name is Oliver Wasau. Did I say your last name properly? You did. I was worried about that. So here's the thing. I'm just going to put this out there. All right. Oliver is, in my opinion, he, he probably won't agree with this or he'll be modest about it. But he's very, 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 very well-known, high-profile, well-respected. He's making faces in the art world. This is me, Wa- Oliver this is not about you right yet. This is all about you, but this part's about me. Okay. So Oliver, you know, I'm afraid that like some really big names, I'm not even going to ne- mention them, but they know who they are. They're friends with Oliver or even his gallerist who I adore, Stephanie Theodore, who's I consider a friend. Stephanie, are we friends? I think you would say so. I'm like a, fr- a little afraid because they know, you know, I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm afraid people might be listening and I don't ever, who knows if that ever happens. So the reason Oliver's here today in particular is because he has a show on right now and at 56 Bogart, uh, you take the L train to the Morgan stop and it's right across the street at Theodore Art. It's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous show. The exhibition is up till April 22nd. And you can also, uh, you'll hear a little bit more about his work, but he's also going to be setting up a portrait studio in the gallery. And you can have a portrait uh, done by him if you get in contact with Stephanie at 212-966-4324. He, Oliver is also going to be having a book coming out soon called Friends, Enemies, and Strangers. And the information when they have the date and the location will be on my uh, Facebook page in the next few weeks. Hello, Oliver. Hello. So, Oliver, your work is so complicated for me to explain. Um, There's like about a million different uh, bodies of work. I'm here, this is what I thought I would do to introduce your work. I'm going to read you the titles. I'm going to read you, folks, not Oliver. I'm going to read you the titles of uh, his bodies of work on his website, and then he's going to try to describe it a little bit. Okay, so it's called, here's, here, I'm just going to do this like a, like a poem, all right? Hoover, buildings and landscapes, travel pictures, interiors, exteriors, flight, portraits. But rogues, artist unknown, and his commercial work. Okay, Oliver, tell us what the <laughs> hell is your work about, or what's tell us um, about tell us about the process a little bit too. Okay, well, those are actually the titles of um, the series, uh, each individual series. How are we doing on audio here? It's Good. You just got to have that thing right in your face. Is and all hear myself in my head. Um. So you know I. I never titled anything of mine for maybe 20 years. And then I went back and retitled all of my work afterward. Um, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'll t- I can talk about that more later. But uh, it, I don't know. To explain my work, um, I, I w- use a lot. I work a lot with um, found imagery and uh, images that I take. I have for 30-plus years um, been... Sort of working with homemade special effects and um, post-production effects to create work that is, um, in the end, hopefully sort of seamless. And then when uh, digital imaging came along, that helped in okay. that regard. Oliver, but, yes. can I break this down in the most superficial way possible? Please. Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, because you know what? Oliver is so... Oliver knows about art, and um, I think you guys are a bunch of morons, so that's how I'm going to put it out there, okay? Very nice. Now All right? Now that we have secured our audience. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. So anyway, uh, the thing is, is that Oliver has this way of working. He creates these very, very fantastical, surreal images. Uh, some of them have to do with UFOs. Oliver doesn't really believe in UFOs, but he does create these fantastical landscapes that are sort of on the border they're surreal border between real and not real and then uh he also started taking portraits in his more recent years 
right? When did you start taking portraits? Uh, about 10, a little less than 10 years ago. Yeah, so he's been doing this over 30, whatever. And so he kind of combines the his work, which is very um, beautiful and technically well done, but also you can't really see the technology of the Photoshop, which is what I love about it. It doesn't look, looks like painting. And he has, so he's got photographic portraits of people, photos, photographic portraits of people with these really dramatic backgrounds that give you a sense of, uh, what's the word? It's, uh, uh, it's slightly, there's a sadness to poignancy. That's the word. That was the word. There's poignancy. Is that cool? uh, Sure. I mean, they're kind of sublime or whatever, but here's the thing. We're on the radio. So talking about what one's pictures look like on the radio, is kind of silly. I know. That's why I'm getting through this part. Okay. So if people want to, (laughs) if people want to go see the show, it's like 30 plus years worth of work in the show. Yeah. And I would just sum it up by saying, I'm interested in, uh, the intersection of painting and photography and spectacle and found go. images and the sublime and the sort of collision of high and low art and blah, blah, blah. So just go see the show or Google me right now. Yeah, yeah, just Google him or you go to my Facebook page. I have all those links. But anyway, I just want to also put in, because this is one of my personal favorites, is his rogues gallery. And Oliver, in my opinion, has the best, in my opinion, honestly, has the favorite work of mine about Trump and the political situation today. So I'm really, I mean that. And um, he's done these really, well, what, why don't you describe the portraits, the rogues gallery, and then we'll move on. We'll move on. Okay. Um, I mean, they are fairly easy to uh, uh, describe because they're not very subtle. You know, they're, they're, I just, after the election, I didn't really know what to do in the studio. It was kind of immobilized. So I, just have been doing an ongoing series of portraits of uh, the Trump cabinet, and they're you know they're just good old fashioned agit prop. Um, you know they're they're just uh, manipulated photographs uh, that capture the uh, sort of decaying inner being of these people. Yeah, they sort of have this way of expressing the personality of each individual in their own horrific but very direct way so it's impossible to describe that at all like the feeling you get from the pictures but they have gotten quite a bit of notoriety and i like them because they're 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 very powerful but also very subtle you know well, which is a weird combination i should also that's point, my review of your work walter i, I like Oliver. it i like it um, and you can call me Walter too. No, you know why? Because, Walter Robinson. No, no, Walter Robinson. My uh, father-in-law is Walter. My your son, father-in-law is Walter Robinson. Walt. No, I'm learning so many that things would be about great. Walter. I would love. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. No, my father-in-law's name is Walter. All his kids have Walter in That's their it. name, That's and it. there's Walter Robinson. And I keep worrying I'm going to say your last name wrong. That's what That's we're talking it. about here. Um, anyway, just to, I should quickly add with these. You know, I d- I didn't make these portraits. These rogue, the series. Um, you know, they were meant to be seen online. Um, a lot of what I do sort of intersects with social media. They're, they were meant to be seen online. They were meant to raise money. And we have, in fact, raised yeah. a fair amount of money. Really? For, How much? How much? At this point, over 10000 Are you for, kidding? For, That's awesome. Yeah. For, um, thank you, Walter Robinson, by the way, uh, for the, and others, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood 
Um, so that that was really, you know, they're not meant to be seen in a gallery in, in uh, any traditional sense. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, what I want to do is talk about uh, Oliver's uh, life, his childhood, because ha- that hasn't been discussed anywhere in this art media, and I think it's time we fucking got down to it and found out about it. One of the things that stands out, I'm just going to call this out for me, is that... Um, I'm going to call you Walter. Let's Oliver. just call me Walter. Today. That's fine. Oliver. I'll call you Barbara. <laughs> so um, Oliver grew up with a schizophrenic brother, which I think in 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 my field or my my faux field is is interesting to me. But also, I think something I read when I was doing my research on Oliver is that. Uh, when he started doing pictures, portraits of people, the two subjects he did first was your your mother and your brother, right? And mm-hmm. what was that had a, an impact on you? How how was that? How did that? What kind of impact? Well, I I had never you know I went almost thirty years without taking a photograph of a person for the purposes of my artwork, um, and I had a lot of reasons why I hadn't. But uh, at some point, sort of born from therapy and getting older and various other things I could talk about. Um, and mostly because I'd been collecting pictures of people, vernacular photographs of people online or digital files of people online. Like people uh, with their TVs. That Like that, funny, that, yeah. funny, fat. Well, uh, Oliver's also known for that as funny, hilarious stuff, like m- magic. Yeah, go ahead. So I started to wonder why I had this separation between these kinds of pictures that I was really interested in, these vernacular old photographs of people, and my work, which was people-less, which in and of itself was kind of an interesting thing. Um, And I decided to uh, take pictures of people. They're pictures that are, um, all you know, they're, they're posed in front of backdrops, and they're about sort of portraiture and painting, and based on these old carte de visite kind of photographs. And the first... Not the first subject, but um, one of the first people I photographed was my brother and my mother because I felt like the thing that I'd always shied away with with people was not wanting to sort of go for the um, overtly emotional, to, to, to not sort of go for that thing, which is, you know, I don't have a lot of belief in photography's ability to capture the soul or to, to sort of speak to speak to that part of our emotional being. So I went for something that was as uh, emotional as possible for me. Mm, mm. And how did you feel? How did you feel like from looking at the photos and the process? Like, did it affect you? I mean, I'm guessing it affected you. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, it it doesn't get to any kind of a truth, um, but it gets to a truth. Did you feel like you related to them in a new way? What was the Who, my brother and my mother? Yeah, through taking their photographs. No. No. no I felt like I related to photography in a new way and to my, my work in a different way. But no, I mean, I don't think so. That's a good question, but I don't think so. What, do you, what, what about your photography? Um, what did I... Yeah, how, how did you relate to your work in a new way? Um. It, it allowed me to see that I could still ha- ha- be engaged with sort of things like artifice and uh, sort of emotional distance and things like that, but also have it um, be 
directly engaged with emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to describe. Uh, so, which is interesting that it's hard to describe. <laughs> well, I'm here. Let's, I think that's. I think we should make. I'm making notes on when, this. That when, it's hard to describe. Uh, well, here's the thing. When you are asked to talk about your work, or when you sort of frame your work as an artist, very often... Which you are a lot. Right. Well, I guess. But very often when... What are you doing? Are you moving the microphone? You need to get closer? Yeah, God, it's really got to be there. Put it in my mouth. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> is it? Yeah. I'm right. sorry. I know. It could could be awkward, but that's the way it needs yeah. to be. Uh, where was I? You were telling us about... Okay, so when you're asked to talk about your work, you um, are asked to often frame it in ways that I find are sort of art, you know, reference art history or reference, you know, technology or, you know, reference sort of theoretical writing. But you're not often asked to, to talk about it, or I didn't talk about it in terms of my own my personal life. And part of that is because I think people who do talk about their work in relation to their own life often do it to kind of create a mythology of the, oh, tor- of the tortured artist. Huh, and, interesting. And, and I've always had a real aversion to that. So I've shied away from it. Um, and yet, you know, in retrospect, when I think about my relationship to my brother, when I was growing up, uh, you know, my brother got very sick when he was uh, maybe 14, uh, and I was 10, um, and I had a really long, ongoing uh, fear for much of my life of going insane also. Mm-hmm. And even though I am not comfortable with a lot of the connections that are made between um, mental uh, illness and creativity, because I think mm-hmm. they are often over-mythologized and... and uh, um, exaggerated it it is now as I get older and I allow myself to sort of mm-hmm. allow for that a little bit mm-hmm. more it, it's I've been I've been sort of looking looking at that again oh well there's a lot um, of growth in that I and, bet. and I think that when you deal with something like schizophrenia where you have a separation between we have a disconnect from reality that parallels uh, photography in some ways or my interest in photography which is something that I've always been interested in the sort ah. of the the, the well, schizophrenic relationship that photography has to reality. You know, right. it, it is both a, a trace of it and it's not. You know, and, and at the same time, it is it isn't reality itself. So, you know, I'd always been interested in those kind of um, otherworldly spaces and that weird sort of hyperreal disconnect between reality and huh. uh, uh, fiction. And then I started to look at it in terms of not just my brother's illness, but more specifically my fear of losing my mind or my fear of not having a grasp mm. on reality. Hey, can I ask you a question? Is it possible sure. to turn the headphones down? That's part down? of the problem with yeah. talking. Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, that doesn't turn it down for the Yeah, them, right? I can hear through. You have your own thing. Is that better? So it's a, uh, Yeah, that's way better. Thank way you. better? Yeah. yeah I'm glad you, glad you asked. Oh, even much better. Okay. Oh, good. I'm so, so that was the problem with getting so close because I couldn't hear myself. Uh-huh. <clears throat> All right. Well, you know, we, we have a full service studio here yeah. and the headphones are on different controls. The, so, shrimp, the shrimp cocktail is fantastic. Is it really good? The green room yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. No, I know. Amazing. And, and the did almonds. you like the welcoming marching band that we had for you? Oh, I'm not a fan of Sousa, but it was. Otherwise. It was nice, though, it. right? They mm-hmm. practiced a long time for that. So, Thank you. 
But I think it would be really interesting. I mean, I want to hear, I want to hear this here. Let's, let's start at the beginning. So where did you grew up in Wisconsin? Tell us about where you grew up. I grew up in a town called Middleton, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which was a very small town outside of Madison, Wisconsin, which was a uh, small town in terms of population, but a, but a college town. So mm-hmm. sort of uh, urban in its own and you, way. You and a, your brother was four years older. Did you have other siblings? I do. I have a very complicated family. My, that brother is, we share a mother, but not a father. Mm-hmm. And I have a sister with whom I share a mother, but not a father. And I grew up with both of them and always thought of them as being my, you know, full brothers, even though they're technically half. So you. Right. And then I have two other brothers who are much older than I am, who we I share a father with. And you didn't grow up with them. I did not, though I'm very close. So, so this this is way beyond my pay grade to understand all this. So, I just want to get a picture of um, what you, who were the people that you were in the house with? That's so. So you have. I was in the house with my father. Mm-hmm. Your real who, father. My biological father, who was uh, 50 years old when I was born, he was a mathematician, mm-hmm. taught at the University of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and my mother my biological mother, who was 26 years old when I was born, so it was 24 years difference. Oh, wow. Was she a Uh, babe? I had to ask that. uh, Yeah, you can ask it, but I can't answer it. That's just, that's above my pay grade. (laughs) All right. I can't go there. Um, I'm picturing it, though. (laughs) uh, And they were temperamentally very different. I mean, they were both um, very sort of secular Jews, but... uh, my father was a mathematician. My mother was a social worker. Uh-huh. Uh, was there yarmulke wearing at home? There's no yarmulke wearing at home. We celebrated Christmas. My father was a German Jew. He, fl- he fled the Nazis. Yeah, uh, really? In, in the 30s, yeah. Wow, as a child, but, right? But no, he was born in 1909. Oh, wow. So he oh, was, right. yeah. when Hitler came to power, he was you know already oh, uh, man. in his early 20s. Wow. And, uh, he came to the States, sort of he got out just in time. Um, and so, yeah, no, he was born before World War One. So what was their dynamic like? What was my parents' dynamic like? Uh, well, they were very, I have very happy memories of their marriage up until I was about 10 and then things increasingly got less happy. So when your brother started getting sick, um, that must've changed everything, right? For everybody. Is that so... And he got sick right at the, you know, we were in a college town. It was the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, there were riots in town oh, all the really? time. And just the whole fucking world was Did it seem dangerous crazy. to live there because of that rioting atmosphere and all that was because, you know. Uh, I didn't feel in danger myself. My father was the um, head of the math department during, uh, from like 68 to 72 and during that time, the Army Math Research Center there was blown up and a couple of people were killed mm. when he was the chair of the department. So we actually went for a year to Switzerland. He got a job teaching in Zurich. Did that scare you? Was that was that sort of frightening when that happened? No. So you weren't really affected exciting. by that. Were you affected by your other half-brothers and sisters floating around, those other families and stuff like that? Was that affecting you? Uh, no, I had like these two older brothers who, you know, one of them is 16 mm-hmm. years older than me, and one of the other ones 14 years older mm-hmm. than me, and they would visit us on holidays. And it, so was it was like, like having uncles. Really. Like yeah. having uncles. No, I loved them. They were great. So, so um, what was, 
what where what was your life like before your brother got sick up until uh, 10 like it was you know was it like were you like a freak it, in a small town i hear it, that a lot from people it was a very small town it was a farming town and it was uh, a very very lutheran town as wisconsin is um can be and we were jews and uh although we were secular jews we were jews you know and i felt mm-hmm. like that famous scene in that woody allen movie where he goes back to wisconsin yeah, right. actually in annie hall and he's got like the uh right what Pay us, Pay us. thank yeah. you see that's that's what my my kids often make fun of me for being such a failed jew i don't even know when Pais is, but um but I felt very Jewish when I was growing up. Like mm-hmm. I would say things like I don't believe in God and stuff on the, uh, which isn't necessarily oh, Jewish, so- that's more atheist. But I would, you know, I was, we were so you very felt- different. We were very different than the, than the mm-hmm. uh, Lutheran mm-hmm. Wisconsin mm-hmm. people. So you were aware of that. And uh, were you like good in, were you interested in anything particular? Were you a sports kid? Were you uh Art, no, drawing, definitely writing, not, definitely anything? not an art kid. I mean, I was, I was one of those kids. I did okay in school up until fifth grade, mm-hmm. and then I kind of just started. Then I just dropped out. Basically, I didn't mm-hmm. do well in anything. And you know, I was one of those kids where the teachers would always say, "You know, Oliver is so smart. He has such potential." If he would just apply himself, and then I oh, remember thinking, yeah. like, "Oh, okay, you know, I'm smart. Then I don't need to prove it to you." And <laughs> I just, I love that um, self-contained. Um, but no, I mean, you know, what really happened was around fifth grade is when my brother started mm-hmm. to get sick. And, so and, what happened? How? How? What was? What was that like? How did it 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 show up? You know, that's a really horrible, mysterious illness. Well, he he, for him, schizophrenia manifests in a very young age, um, which in sort of the younger you are, the more uh, severe it is, and he mm-hmm. was, he he was quite sick and still is. Um, mm-hmm. and but of course this was it at the height of the sort of Ken Kesey, you know, who's uh, crazy, them or us? The like, yeah, right. You know, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing. So, um, and there were a lot of drugs being taken by by him yeah. and by by everyone. Yeah, and so my mother, who you know, so when my brother started acting. Crazy, very crazy. She's getting like you know, psychiatrists telling her, "Well, you know, you need to hug him more, love him more, whatever the fuck uh, the psychiatrists did around that time," uh-huh. um, and denying that he was sick. And uh, it wasn't, and of course they had all these uh, deinstitutionalization. I guess that came later, but yeah, there, it was it, it was impossible to. He's walking around barefoot in the middle of you know, sub-zero weather living in caves, going to northern Wisconsin to liberate the Indians and you know, just all this stuff. Did he? And and mm-hmm. uh, psychiatrists are just saying, like, you know, he needs psychotherapy when obviously what he needed was to be institutionalized and put on drugs. Um, so it was a long, it was a number of years until he could, until they finally got him to be. So what would happen uh, was, was it like he, um, did he try to, did he run away from home? Did he start not sleeping? Did he, like, was it sudden or was it all, or like what happened at home? Like how, how did everybody cope with that? Like. Just chaos. I mean, no, he. Was he, there a lot of arguing or. 
How, well, mm. what did your role? What was your role? Was it staying out of the way? Was no, I mean, it, I started by saying that they just didn't understand him, and then I saw a few episodes. I saw a few real psychotic episodes. Uh-huh. And at one point, when I was thirteen years old, uh, I went out to California actually to live with my older brother because I needed to get out of the house. Uh, my parents wanted me out of the house because at they were age thirteen. Yeah. Why? Because there was just too much chaos in the house. There's, there is, there was a point where they were trying to get him institutionalized, and uh, my brother kindly offered to put me up for a year in Palo Alto. So I went. Oh, uh, your older brother. Right. Yeah, because he's so uh, like, I, uh, like uncle. I was, went thir- to live with your I was uncle thirteen. Brother. I went to live with my brother, who was twenty-seven at the time. Oh, yeah. And he and his wife were. You know, she was pregnant with his their first kid. Oh, so I lived there. Was that nice? Well, or was, how did you feel about it? It was nice for me. I think it was hell for them. <laughs> I'm very grateful that they did it. I was I was a very difficult child. Really? Why? Yeah. What did you do? I was just I was very I was taking a lot of drugs and very involved in a lot of uh, I was acting up. So did at age thirteen? Wow. Well, I guess I can understand that you you know that's a difficult background that you were from. But did you? Um, did you feel unsupervised? Maybe did you feel like kind of independent while you were there? Like you could do it, get away with more? Uh, I thought I would. When I, and then when I got there, I realized it was actually just the opposite. Oh. My, my brother's wife was like, she took no bullshit. Good for her. Yeah. In the long run, right? Probably. Yeah. yeah so, um, so it was just like chaos around your house. Can, I don't, I don't mean to like pry or can, can, but I'm just trying to picture it. And it's, Frankly, I mean, my father had a severe depression mm-hmm. and he walked around for for a time without bathing or talking mm-hmm. or sleeping and, you know, just in his bathrobe. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've seen that, but I don't think this is what you're talking about is very different. So can you give us more of an idea? I'm trying to imagine it. It's very hard to imagine. I mean, it's, you know, it's very hard for me to separate it all from the time from that early 70s time i mean the world mm-hmm. was just like going crazy then right with like the sla and <laughs> this water well, there was a lot of violence and, and craziness and, 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 and just... helter skelter and stuff so in, in some ways in my mind in retrospect uh it was all under that umbrella and then filtered through a haze of drugs mm-hmm. from my perspective right mm-hmm. so in terms of his behavior um you know, I was 13 years old. All I wanted was to like just, you know, I wasn't conscious of what that meant. I right. Mean, in, I have a lot of, uh, I've looked back on it and I have a lot of feelings about it in retrospect mm-hmm. that are ever shifting. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. constantly but that's, shifting. At the time, it's just at like the, the time, world is crazy. At the time, it was just like, here's another kid, you know, barefoot right. talk, talking about, uh, you know, right. talking about the classic, you know, paranoid schizophrenic, right. schizophrenic uh, uh, hallucinations. And he was having a lot of audio and, and, and visual hallucinations, and he was um, basically, you know, I mean, we all see schizophrenics every day on the street. We they, do, yeah. They're usually self-medicated. A lot of people don't under, don't understand I mean, I, you know, that. On the, on the train ride down here, I was up in the Poughkeepsie uh, train station before I came down here, just this building has these incredible acoustics and there's a schizophrenic woman sitting on the bench in there because it's cold out talking loudly to herself for mm-hmm. an hour and we all just sat there while she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So, 
you know, with our mental health laws the way there are, there are many, many self-medicated and unmedicated schizophrenics everywhere. And so that's what it was mm-hmm. like. It was like living with. And you said like you were taking a lot of drugs. So what kind of like, what was, what were, what was there, what were you doing? What I was mean, your life like? Uh, I mean, for me, I had most of my drug use, you know, other than pot and alcohol really was between like 13 and 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just meaning, meaning like a lot of acid. Yeah. Which is a really strange thing because I would take acid and always have a bad trip. Always. Yeah. It's intense. I mean, it, I never enjoyed it and I would keep taking it. And <clears throat> if I was in the country, I'd be okay. I still didn't enjoy it, but if I was in the country, at least I was like, um, I didn't, I felt less paranoid. Um, scary. It's horrible. It's a horrible drug. <laughs> Although I've been reading a lot of stuff recently and hearing a lot of stuff recently about how it's now being um, used, re-studied in controlled ways, particularly for people who yeah. have terminal cancer and stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, but it, um, I still don't understand why when I had this total obsessive twenty-four hour a day fear of losing my mind why i took acid and it had to have something to do with this weird i mean there was a peer pressure thing i think but it also had to have something to do with this weird relationship i had to my brother and wanting to sort of i don't know were you were you trying to understand was he hard to understand was it were you trying to understand him you know again i, I could only, you, you only one couldn't speculate yeah, and, and only, at the right. time You're, you know at the time i can say that for many many years after i quit all other drugs i continued to smoke pot mm-hmm. and drink. And I, I smoked pot like every day, all day until I was about 30 mm. and never smoked it in public with anybody ever. Mm-hmm. Only smoked it in my studio. And I would get very high and my work would look so fucking good. And I would just think like, oh, I'm just, I'm a genius. And then I'd come down, I'd have to get high again. <laughs> and um, I was afraid to stop smoking pot because even though it made me very paranoid, like I said, I did it alone, so I was okay. But I was afraid to stop smoking pot because I thought that it allowed me to access that in-between space that I'm interested in my work, that kind of hallucinatory uh, album cover sort of (laughs) 13-year-old adolescent boy space that I was interested in. Um, I haven't taken any drugs since, uh, in almost 30 years, not since I was 30, but um, of any kind, but uh, that was that relationship to pushing myself to the brink of insanity with drugs is something that I continued to do for uh, a long time after I quit did, taking acid. Did you have um? Did you have a lot of friends? Were you part of a group of people that were all taking drugs together? Yeah, I had that middle school thing where I felt like the outsider. All the jocks were doing what they were doing and stuff in seventh grade and you know I was just like I was miserable and then I discovered drugs and I suddenly had tons of friends yeah. oh well that's probably a big encouragement to take drugs sure. for sure. sure and 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 actually in a certain way I think it's good that you kind of were able to handle that because a lot of people could have just become total loners and you know I mean you were part of a community which is always a healthy thing uh, how did <laughs> I'm not your parent... sure. I don't know if it's always a healthy thing actually. well I don't know <laughs> It seems to have community. worked out one way or the other, but um, because now you are happy, you've been happily married. I just want 
don't 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 feel bad for Oliver. You're ha- you've been happily no, no, married for how long? Hmm? You have two children. One's two yes. teenage children. You've been happily married for I, how long? I've been happily, very happily married for. Uh, well, I've been with my wife Dana Hoey since two thousand and one, and married since two thousand four, and we've yeah, got a go. sixteen year old and a fourteen year old. Yeah, there mm. you go. And she's no, no, also is... a very well respected artist. So. I'm saying, folks, whatever, and he's got a, you know, a very, also a great, what I think of as a great art career. Don't feel bad for him. This is, this is not so, I mean, he did okay. (laughs) So how did your parents um, manage you when your brother got sick? Like what, what happened? How did they, how did they relate? How, how did they handle that as far as being your parents? Mm -hmm. Well, again, one can only look at this stuff in, retrospect sure. years of therapy and stuff and and as now that i have my own kids i certainly have much more sympathy <laughs> for them um you know when you're 13 years old it's like why the, you know and again i didn't consciously think this at the time in retrospect i sort of realized like uh hello you know i'm over here little attention please you know like did you you felt for, like mm-hmm. i didn't feel it at the time consciously mm-hmm. but i assume mm-hmm. that that was a big part of my childhood was like you know my brother consumed all energy all attention was on him because he was uh uh because of what was because he was ill yeah (laughs) um so how they handled it i don't know their their marriage didn't last you know they they divorced Uh, when i was 17 and mm -hmm. probably would have divorced much sooner had i not uh had they not uh stayed together for me i guess i don't know um but uh, it yeah I mean I don't, I don't know what caused their marriage. So you were to, in the you were you were clearly in the background. Does that it doesn't sound like you had a lot of conflict with them? Oh, I did have a lot of conflict with them. Tons of conflict. Really? Fighting, like what? Constant fighting all day, twenty four seven. About what? Did they know you were taking drugs? Mm, I don't know. Well, what would they fight Which about? Which baffles me that I don't know that. Uh, mm, what, interesting. What did we fight about? Yeah, you 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 were in conflict with your parents. Yeah. With my mother, mostly. Uh, I don't know. Like, just. Did you resent them? Do you remember how you felt towards them? No. Wow, and you've been in therapy? (laughs) I don't believe in that kind of therapy. I mean, I believe in it, but I don't. that's all right. I mean, yes. uh, It's interesting. Here's the thing about therapy. Here's the thing about therapy. You go to therapy to knock your parents off a pedestal, right? Well, uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but that's a whole other conversation. Well, for me, that's what I did. And mm-hmm. then slowly try to put them back up. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm feeling sorry for for your mom right now for some reason. <laughs> that must have been fucking tough, man. Well, and it's and that's the thing is it's like it's not until I had kids of my own that I was really allowed myself to have more than a kind of intellectual uh, understanding. Of feeling sure. Sorry for no, me. I mean it's really, really what you went through is really, really tough. And however it processed, it processed, and it, you know it's impressive. However, it processed, it processed pretty well. But um, or um, so I'm just like, did your parents realize it was schizophrenia? How long, like that? It was a phys- it's a physical illness, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when did they realize it was a physical illness? Uh, it was diagnosed fairly. Fairly after, early. after that first sort of, you know, Episode. six months of like, mm-hmm. you know, you just need to, he's just acting out, it's the 60s or whatever, you know, when he really started to 
clearly be having hallucinations mm-hmm. and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and uh, was in risk of losing his life and had to be institutionalized, right. then it became, and then it was called mm-hmm. schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And, and did you uh, see violence at home? No. Okay. Uh, you talked about um, your fear of going crazy, which I can understand. Can you like tell me a little bit more about that, like how that developed and how it's, how it, you know, integrated into your life? Like, what was that like? Well, I mean, it's, it um, continues in some ways in that I, you know, I, have, I wrestle with anxiety and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I um. Did you worry but, that your children were going to inherit that or anything? No, like that? schizophrenia is a um, actually, and I found this out rather late in life. Um, I knew that it was a genetic chromosomes. I knew it was genetic, uh, and so that was a lot, had a lot to do with my fear of going crazy. What I didn't know is that it comes from your father's side of the family. Oh, and my brother and I don't share a father. Ah. <laughs> I wish they. I wish you'd know well, that on you day know, one. Maybe, Don't worry, listen, guys, right. we got this. It's, <clears throat> so so anyway, me, but, but um, so um, what was when did you develop the fear? Was it early on after he's? I mean, it sounds like a normal way to respond to something like that. Or what? What? What's that fear about? What's that like having it, to live with that? Well, it's very hard for me to separate it from the drug use because, like I said, I was taking these drugs that pushed me to the brink mm-hmm. of of, of um, but I was also, you know, I had a lot of panic attacks and if you ever ah. had, if you've ever had a panic attack, you know that one of the manifestations of panic attack is a kind of disassociative, uh, mm-hmm. uh thing. You, mm-hmm. you leave your body in some ways and I would have these panic attacks and I, I don't know in retrospect, I think some of them might've been flashbacks also, but <laughs> I would have these panic attacks where I felt like I was separated from my body. And I think that that's how I understood mental illness was a kind of, it's when your brain betrays you. Ah, interesting. So like if your brain is suddenly seeing shit that's not there, hearing stuff that's not there, that's like a betrayal. That's a separation of um, uh, what your brain is supposed to do, mm-hmm. which, is, <laughs> which is, you know, your input is supposed to be what's actually <laughs> happening out, out there and then you can correspond to it. So, you know, and, and hmm. you know, strangely my Fear of losing my mind was usually a social fear also. I was afraid that I would act out in some way. Like and, like your brother? You mean maybe, I don't control, know. I mean, I mean, to this day, like I can't fly without um, um, Xanax or Avatar mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And part of the fear, it's like I know the plane's not going. Yeah, down, right. Right? That's, that's like, I know the plane isn't going isn't to crash. The fear is I'm in a small little box, which and that's I, claustrophobia too but i'm in a small little box and you're thirty-five thousand feet up in the air and if you suddenly start going fucking let me out of here or going crazy you know they put you in a straitjacket or whatever they do so my fear is more like the fear of losing control mm-hmm. and i think that that all of the sort of anxiety that issues i've dealt with in my life have been about that fear of disassociating from reality of losing control Mm-hmm. It's like there's a. It's, I'm a Jew talking about this stuff. I got to mention Woody Allen again <laughs> in this Me Too moment. Despite this, uh, oh yes, Woody so, Allen. Yeah, separate there's, the art and the artist. <clears throat> there's well, that's well that, 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 that's anyway, the there's yeah. a scene where and I don't, a lot of people don't remember it was Christopher Walken, but I think it's also in Annie Hall where they're in a car and Christopher Walken is driving and he's like he's a vet, he's come back from the war or something, and he's talking about how. 
he has a fear of turning the car into the oncoming headlights. Right, yeah. And that, I think, really perfectly describes it. It's like, all you got to do is drive. Right. But it's like, you. But like if I drive up Highway 1 in California, I can do it going upstate. I can't do it going downstate. I can't do it going south because I'm on the ocean side. Uh-huh. And oh, when see. you know that all you have to do is go, and you can just kill yourself. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not suicidal. I don't have a desire no, to kill no, myself. Right, right, right. But it's like, and that's why, you know, I have a fear of heights also. It's like, there's like one inch between me and death. It's like that I can't control. I can't handle that responsibility. I imagine um, seeing, did you talk about your brother with your friends or did you keep that private uh, out of the house? I think I kept it private. I actually remember, and this, this is an awful thing to admit to, but, um, you know, I had this group of friends in high school, and there was this kid, Bob, I can't remember his last name, and he clearly had schizophrenia, like in retrospect, mm-hmm. especially, I realized that. And he would take drugs with us and stuff, and he would really, like, just, he would be laughing to himself. Oh, it was just like, I mean, he was really, it was really scary stuff, and we, we would make fun of him. Oh. You know, I just remember making fun of him, and I remember, like, thinking, yeah, it's like, I don't, you know, kids are like, when you're when you're a young when you're yeah. 15 16 years old it takes you know a special kind of kid i had i had great empathy i was a wonderful kid but when you get a group of kids yeah. together yeah it's like you don't sit despite what they might tell you in the movies and maybe kids have changed now too but you don't you don't i don't know we didn't sit around and talk about uh our feelings right well it's also really scary for a bunch of kids to see that and that's probably the best coping mechanism any kid could have so i can understand that but it sounds like although um, i'll just interrupt i see my kids now and i actually i don't know what they do when they're not around me but i think they're they would be better than that like i think actually that there is more of a social consciousness now yeah well that's because there are kids are from our generation there our generation is their parents and we're more socially Maybe, yeah. conscious too i think well yeah. i can see how that would be really scary because i mean to grow up with um you know your brother in the sense that uh he was capable of behavior that you didn't really see anywhere else and you couldn't really talk about it or you know you probably didn't have the tools to describe it so it could probably just get all you know um in integrate you know you kind of internalized a lot of it i think maybe mm-hmm. you know because you couldn't really discuss it with anybody and it, it was really really frightening and we're not allowed to boys can't say they're scared right and mm, i guess yeah yeah no, i just seem more like very, it was also just there's always this feeling of like so is he gonna get better is he gonna get better and then at some point you realize like okay he's not getting better and then it becomes He's a really sweet man. I really, you know, I, 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 the amount of, I just can't describe how bad I feel for him. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, that's the sort of overriding thing. It's just like nothing can be done. Um, But it's also like on a selfish level, when you, you know, when you're with somebody that you can't talk to, Uh and I can't really carry on much of a conversation with my brother, um, that's hard. And it's just sometimes it's easier just to avoid it. And, that's yeah. what, and then you feel guilty and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because it's really profoundly uh, painful to to live with that. It is. I mean, we there's, all there's, have different things, but that's really, that's a big one. Yeah, and there's a huge space between who you want to see yourself as and who you are. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any way that you can really uh, square that living with somebody like that unless, you know, I mean, there's just no, what are you going to do, give up your entire life to, you know, I mean, I don't, I mean, I can't imagine. There are people who do. I mean, there are people who, who, uh, you know, fight the good fight and show up and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's, you know, if that who would make that choice i don't know i mean i don't even know if that's a healthy choice but that's all that that is a really difficult really difficult situation and we wanted i wanted to get into we had we had sort of talked a little bit about this before we got the air on the air and we're kind of running out of time now sadly mm-hmm. we only have 11 minutes left but i did want to see if we could touch on how it affects how um we were we were starting to talk about how you've become a little more, I think, emotionally aware lately, and how your emotions and your work sort of are more conscious for you. Is mm-hmm. that a good way to put it? What we were talking about? Maybe. I mean, I think well, I, however we put it, you know right, what I'm saying. I do. Let's, that, go, let's talk about oh, that. You tell me. <laughs> well, and I made I made reference to it earlier. I think that, um, and it may be just a byproduct of getting older too. I'm, I'm just I'm sure. more interested now in kind of looking back and and looking at my work from a perspective that is less about art history and about critical theory and more about, uh, which a lot of people do from the get-go. I mean, this is sort of my my failing, I think, in some ways, Um, and looking at it more in terms of the stuff that we're talking about now and and framing it um, in terms of my uh, inner... Yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking about that because I can imagine like a way for you to cope with what happened with your brother is to try to distance yourself. But I think like in your work, you've sort of come. Well, what really struck me was when I was reading, I was doing my research on you was that it was very sudden when you started combining your uh, kind of landscape type work and your portraiture work. And it was very conscious on your mm-hmm. part. And I think I was thinking that that was, there was some resistance for you to, for you to, from you to accessing some of your emotions, which I think is pro, which you had probably had to develop. So maybe you're more comfortable doing that now or they're bleeding together yeah. more or. I mean, I can frame it in, in, a, in a bigger picture in terms of, um, the cultural condition of, of uh, sarcasm and cynicism and irony and mm-hmm. distance. All of these things that I grew up with um, that were a huge part of my uh, early adolescence as we went from the sort of hippie period, which was you know my, my brother's period, and how I defined myself as a 16-year-old in 1976, 70, you know, 15 years old in 75, was Velvet Underground, Patti Smith, the Ramones, uh, and you know, sex pistols, things that were, you know, art, but they were very much about a kind of, or maybe Warhol is a much better example. Mm-hmm. Warhol was like a lifeboat for me, mm-hmm. a life jacket for me, because there was this kind of like, it was really smart and really like important art, but it was all about surface and veneer mm-hmm. and spectacle mm-hmm. and distance and all of these things that worked very well for me at a time when I probably just didn't want to deal with um, you know, reality. And they were also, you know, were a cultural condition that exists to this day. We got fucking Trump as president. I mean, the ultimate sort of <laughs> dystopian, you know, reality. We have a reality TV uh, star as a president. So this kind of Warholian sort of 
tradition continues, unfortunately. But I think as one starts to see the downside to that, and as one gets older and has kids themselves, and you start to see, okay, irony can be a defense, and and it can be, it's great, or sarcasm, whatever, you know, it's great. I I think it's really important. Sincerity Mm -hmm. kills things, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. It can kill things. Um, But I I want, I, I think, as I get older, as I have kids of my own and stuff, I am trying to find that point at which those things can intersect more. And actually, I think that's one of the things that made Warhol so good, as opposed to a lot of the sort of Warholian pretenders, is that sure, it was about irony and distance and coolness, but it was a fucking electric chair, right? So it was about the death penalty and it was about very real things. It was about race riots, and, you know? So it's, it's, Finding that point where where the real and the artificial intersect, or where genuine feeling and you know that sort of shield you put up around yourself intersect, mm-hmm. is is where I'm. Mm-hmm. I think where I've been moving more in that direction of like, yes, I'm interested in spectacle. I'm interested in you know things that are sort of um, very cool and distanced and everything. But it's, mm-hmm. I want to find the heat in that as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me, like to get back to this picture of my brother, for me, it was a way of saying to my brother, you know, I am going to present you, you know, with this permission and everything, as this kind of, you know, it, it, this is, it, my picture of him isn't a classic sort of, you know, I'm going to go into an insane asylum and take a picture of a crazy no. person and, and get pathos from you or, you know, make a sort of Diane Arbus spectacle out of it. It's more about like, can you actually penetrate this, uh, there is so much real emotion there and like mm-hmm. yeah. the inability of a picture to actually provide you with that. And it does for me, I look at that picture and it moves me a great deal. And at the same time, it's not him, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. so the, yeah, so that's, and it's in your show now that, that is the picture of your mother. It's the only portrait, right? Th- those, those two, I did a show of yeah. portraits at Stephanie. And those are the, the only two I put in. Otherwise everything right. in the show is, uh, older work and and from from the eighties. In fact, the picture of my brother is next to one of the first pieces I did, which I did in nineteen eighty three, mm-hmm. which is just called Flash, which is just a flash mm-hmm. of light in a, a pure perspective kind of thing. Well, I just, the, sorry, just oh. which looks like a nuclear explosion, which mm-hmm. a little bit. Which for me, nuclear explosions are the ultimate example of this like unimaginable horror and beauty at the same time. Right, right. It's a blind. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't, this planet hasn't seen one in like 40, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It is, it's so freaky to even think about, think about that. Um, Do you think having kids changed, I mean, how did that change you? Having kids changed everything. I mean, uh, you know, we're we're focused on, you know, your work and your your emotional state and the relationship between your emotional state and your work. Mm-hmm. So how did that change? Or like, what did that? I mean, it's Paul part of what I was just talking about. I think it's like, you can't, you cannot have children and retain the level of misanthropic, cynical, sarcastic, ironic. I just keep throwing, but you know, I know these are different words, but I kind of throw them into the, 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 the bag together. You just can't hold on to that stuff. It's like Be, because I mean you can no but I do. mean like what about what I you know I never I have a stepson yeah who I always say I love dearly which I do he's getting married in May but uh I never had kids so and can you can can you you know uh like did did you 
did your relationship to being in a family change because you had a trouble let's say you had a troubled family and now you have your own family mm-hmm. it was yours mm-hmm. it was yours is that a big part of it or something like that I, you know i don't know how to say it except it's you know it's sounding corny or something but it's like you know i met my wife and it was like you know i fell in love uh-huh am in love had kids and that's a love that's like a different even a whole different kind of love where you know it's like uh for me it was like oh that's why i'm here you know so it gave your life a certain meaning and 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 it gave my life meaning meaning in a way that for me and i, yeah. I, I mean i would have had i never planned to have kids you know i, I didn't think it, it, and then i wanted to and i'm very glad that i did and I think if I hadn't, I would. My life would have had great mm-hmm. meaning, also. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it is, having had kids, that that is where much of the meaning of my life, you know, is, mm-hmm. my my life is understood at this point mm. uh, in relation to. And it's not a burden I put on them. Hopefully, no. I'm just saying my life is understood now in 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 terms of like something very uh, basic and. Your family biological. doesn't show up in your work literally a lot does it no i've got like a lot of pictures of my wife my, and my kids in my work hmm why That's am i missing that i don't know pictures of my two pictures of my wife my last show two of my daughter one of my son so they are yeah they i are mean probably more than in. they would like to be and i and to be honest i do it more because they're there and i can photograph them yeah because uh, you've always seems like you've always liked photographing people you know family and friends or at least that's how you yeah, started. Yeah, again, right? I think in some ways it's more just because I hate I hate taking photographs of people. I don't enjoy the process of doing it. So if it's somebody I know, it's easier. Oh, I mean, you don't like what what is like the whole like? Do you feel like what do you feel like they're doing you a favor? Sit there, do this, do that. I just I'm you always afraid. Them. I mean, I think probably a lot of photographers can relate to this. I'm afraid I'm going to spend two hours photographing them and then realize I forgot to put in the. Oh, <laughs> car, the lighting sucks, or it's just like my, you know, huh. for me, photographs are something that that's one of the reasons I don't really like taking photographs. I uh-huh. much prefer finding them. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's just like the act of actually taking a, lot of a picture pressure. doesn't interest me. A lot me of that pressure. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, like, oh, sorry, we forgot to record the show or something right. like that. Right. I get it. Exactly. Uh, Did I we? Just, forget we to have, it? No, we have one minute <laughs> left. Um, You know, that I just wanted to say how powerful that portrait of your brother is and how, like, you, you. it's very, very complicated and undefinable, the emotion that you get from it, but it's very, very powerful. And uh, I encourage you, I'm going to encourage everybody to see the show before April 22nd. And it's at 56 Bogart Street. That's at uh, Theodore R. Check, check our check my Facebook page for the uh, information on the upcoming book launch of Friends, Enemies and Strangers. And I also want to put in another big plug to make sure that everybody goes to the show tonight. You've got to go to the show at the well. Okay. And uh, stay tuned because my good friend Ilan Danzinger is up. He's hilarious and funny. He plays great music. Lost and Rewound is on right after this.